So today, in addition to Father's Day and the third Sunday after Pentecost, we are celebrating Juneteenth. Juneteenth commemorates the day, June 19th, in 1865, when 2,000 Union troops arrived in Galveston, Texas, two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation to declare that all enslaved people in Texas were free. It is sometimes called Emancipation Day or the Second Independence Day. And in the Episcopal Church, led largely by our diocese here, uh, the Diocese of California, it is now a feast day in the Episcopal Church uh, much like we also commemorate Independence Day, Memorial Day, Thanksgiving, etc. I'm wondering how many of you knew anything about the existence of Juneteenth until about three or four years ago? Anybody? Okay, a couple. I think at least two or three of you, I think every hand that went up is from the South. <laughs> I knew nothing about Juneteenth. A several years ago, we had a youth group pilgrimage that went through Texas, and we went to Galveston, and I vaguely recall a plaque and something about Juneteenth and, and that announcement, that order being read there. But in my mind, it was like just a Galveston thing. I didn't realize that it was such a momentous day for whole parts of the African-American community in our country, that for them it was Independence Day or it was really Emancipation Day because finally all slaves in the country were free. My wife, Amy, was telling me about a conversation she had with two black co-workers, one of whom grew up in a black neighborhood in San Francisco, who said uh, every June 19th there'd be like picnics in the neighborhood, but she wasn't really sure, like, she didn't really grow up understanding what it was about. And another black coworker who didn't really grow up with any knowledge of Juneteenth. Really, since some of the things like the murder of George Floyd and others, has it become more into our awareness as a country and uh, the significance of Juneteenth for black Americans and for the history of our country. So this feast day and this federal holiday is an opportunity for us to reckon with the history of slavery and racism in this country and to look at and address the racism that still exists in our society today, especially towards, on this day, African Americans. One of the things that saddens and grieves me is the extent to which racism has become a partisan issue in the country. Certainly we can have different views on policy decisions to address racism. But I get a little disheartened when I hear conversations that, that question the very existence of systemic racism. Even the conservative-leaning Supreme Court just ruled on a case in Alabama that you can't gerrymander 
districts on the basis of race, which is a systemic policy. But sometimes I think, you know, we're used in the country today that it's, it's a trap that we fall into. And how do we really address it as humans, as individuals, and especially in church, as followers of Jesus? And by divine providence, perhaps, so the readings we're taking today are from a, year lectionary, a women's lectionary for the whole church, year W., for the third Sunday after Pentecost. Much of the rest of the liturgy is for Juneteenth, developed in our diocese. But the gospel is not the Juneteenth gospel. But I actually think this gospel is a perfect way to address the issues raised by Juneteenth. In the passage, Jesus and his disciples, good Jews, have traveled to the regions of Tyre and Sidon which are pagan areas, areas known to be somewhat unfriendly towards Jews. And the people in those regions, whether they're called Canaanites or Syrophoenicians, are of a different racial, ethnic, and religious group than the Jews, than Jesus and his disciples. And so we have this Gentile woman, the Canaanite in this passage, Syrophoenician and others, comes begging Jesus, who's been traveling around healing, to heal her daughter who is possessed by a demon. Now, obviously, this woman is not a Jew. And the passage is really quite stunning. Jesus says, I was not sent to any except the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I wasn't sent for you people. You're not my people. I wasn't sent for you. The woman persists, please, Lord, help me, out of desperation for her daughter. And then Jesus says, I think maybe the most chilling line in all of Scripture, it is not good to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is calling this woman a dog and comparing her. He was sent to the children of Israel. This woman is a dog, and she doesn't deserve the food that is meant for the children. How does that passage strike you? I mean, it's pretty shocking, really. Jesus calling this woman a dog on the basis of her racial, ethnic, and religious background. Wilda Gaffney, who did the translation we're using in her commentary, talks about the way Jesus is exhibiting his ethnocentric bias in this passage. This passage is Jesus the racist. It's something to confront. How do we deal with it? When you're looking at Scripture, if you look at a Bible, often you'll um, sections of Scripture will have headings, right? Like the Sermon on the Mount, the Baptism of John in the Jordan, things like that. Uh, by the way, in case you were wondering, those are not in the original texts. 
The headings have been added for our help by translators and as part of lectionary, the way the lectionary is divided up. If you look at the English translations of the Bible, this section of verses today, this passage is titled, Faith of the Canaanite Woman. And I think that's the wrong title. Because that's not really what happens in this passage. Yes, she exhibits great faith. What this passage is really saying is much deeper. This passage is the transformation and healing of This is Jesus, the Son of God, fully divine and fully human, through this encounter coming into a fuller understanding of who he is, what his ministry is, and the fullness of God's mercy. When she says, even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the Lord's table, it is saying to Jesus that God's mercy falls even on the dogs. Even the people you think are dogs and don't deserve the food, God's mercy is so great that even the scraps come to them and they take them. And that is the display of faithfulness. And it's interesting that up until this point in the gospel, Jesus is always like, go know the Gentiles, and lots of stuff about Gentiles. Last Sunday's passage was, you know, kind of dismissing a woman because she was, or, or not just this passage, the, uh, when he's like, you know, even the Gentiles do the same, right? Like, they're kind of the lowest common denominator. And after this passage, Jesus' ministry and his call to the disciples changes. And we go from go nowhere among the Gentiles to go out and make disciples of all nations. It's a complete expansion and transformation of Jesus' ministry from this one moment. Yes, the woman shows incredible faith. Yes, the daughter ends up getting healed of her demon. But the real healing in this passage, I think, is actually Jesus being healed of the demon of his own racism that he was raised with as a human Jew, even though also fully divine. I think that's what's happening in this passage. Martin Luther King Jr. in his famous I Have a Dream speech talked about he had a dream that one day his children would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. This passage is Jesus living into that dream. He goes from judging the woman because of her racial ethnic background to judging her by the content of her character and by her faith. We were talking about this at the 9 o'clock service and said the amazing thing about Jesus in this passage is he gets it and changes so quickly. And most of us don't. <laughs> right? Like it's our lives work to figure this out. But somehow Jesus has that experience of grace and it transforms him. And if Jesus can change, we can all change, right? He is showing us the way which is amazing. And I think 
what this passage invites us to do is to think about what are the encounters each one of us have had, especially with a person of a different race that have transformed us. Now, I'm mainly speaking to white people here. If you're white, what are those experiences you've had encountering someone of another race? And how has that encounter changed you? How do those encounters force us to examine our biases? The ways we grew up, the things we were taught in ch as children or just in our culture. The way they show us reality in a deeper way. As I was thinking about this, I was reflecting on my own childhood. So I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, in an affluent neighborhood, almost entirely white, except for a few Asian families. So growing up, all of my friends were either white or a few Asian kids. Now, because we were non-Mormon, it was Jews and Catholics and all that. I certainly saw some of the racism towards my Asian friends. But I don't think I knew anyone who was black or Latino until I was at least in middle school. And part of that is because at the time in Salt Lake, almost the entire black and Latino communities, I think I'm saying Latino wrong now, it should be Latinx probably, sorry. Lived, literally lived on the other side of the tracks. Literally. So not only was it a racial issue, it was a class issue. And isn't that so much a part of our American society, right? That class and economics and race all mix together. You see that in the neighborhoods and areas of the Bay Area. And I don't think it was really until high school that I had a friend who was black. Like, I knew some black people, but I don't think I had a friend. And there was a girl in my class, and we became pretty good friends. And I remember when I was in college, and uh, I really liked this girl, Amy, and I was coming down to the Bay Area for Thanksgiving to visit Amy, but I, I drove down, and I stopped in, uh, in uh, University of Oregon to pick up my friend, and she and I drove down, and I was going to stay with, mostly with her and her aunt's family. I had never stayed with a black family before, but what really struck me about that encounter was how uncomfortable her aunt was having a white person stay at their home. It was not racism towards me. I don't think that's a thing. I think it was someone whose entire life had been not great experiences with white people, and now she had to host a white person. I mean, she was, of course, gracious and lovely and all that, but you could sense some of that tension. And I'm so glad I had that experience. Man, I learned a lot. <laughs> I, 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 I really learned a lot. When I first started at St. John's in 2003, at the time, we had one black member. And he would often serve as an usher. 
And after about two years, he just stopped attending St. John's. And uh, he came to see me a few years after that and said, you know, uh, the reason I stopped coming to St. John's is as the only black member of this congregation, I didn't always feel welcome and comfortable. Now, I'm not saying that as uh, blame or guilt. I took that as my failure as the rector of not creating that space. Now, again, this isn't about guilt, right? My beloved father-in-law always used to say, guilt is boring. Uh, and, and it's also often self-indulgent. So this isn't about guilt, but it's about saying, when we talk about being a house of prayer for all people, we also have to accept the reality, not with guilt, but just the reality that this is an almost entirely white space. And what does it mean for us to live into being a house of prayer for all people, given that reality. We're a different congregation than we were 20 years ago. We're much more, I mean, we're not diverse, but we're much more diverse than we were. And our society has changed a lot. Thank God. But it's just a reminder, how do we live into those encounters? He did not have good encounters. <laughs> and I grieve that. When I think of my own life, I think I've probably learned the most about God and about myself from encounters with people who are different from me, especially people of different races, people with different economic backgrounds. We're about to travel to Malawi, Africa, to visit Father Francis and his work at Agape Farms. And it's really different when you go to a part of the world where most people don't have running water or electricity. And where we go in Salima is south of Nkota Kota. And there's an Anglican cathedral at Nkota, built on the property next to the tree, which is still there where David Livingston negotiated the end of the Arab slave trade. Now again, this is the Arab slave trade, not the slave trade to, to Britain or to the United States. But it's pretty powerful to be in that place and think of the slave trade that was happening among those people. And also to visit the site, and that like all this stuff about what was happening in Galveston around emancipation and stuff, that's all within 20 years or so of when this was being negotiated in Africa. The time frames are pretty similar. It just brings it home in a, in a different way. And all of this, especially this gospel story and thinking about Juneteenth, It reminds me of something you've probably heard me say that my, my mentor and professor in seminary always said, 
It takes the whole world to know the whole gospel. It takes the whole world to know the whole gospel. And in that sense, diversity is a blessing. And it is the only way we can encounter the fullness of God. May each of us continue to be blessed with encounters like Jesus has with the Canaanite woman. And may they transform us as Jesus was transformed.